0: Alrighty, the kiddos can go to Children's Church, the uh, big people. If you're bigger, you can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 15. We've been studying through Matthew's gospel and we're getting to a transitional point again this morning. We're going to take a good chunk of it today. Let's uh, let's pray and ask God to just to bless our time in the Word, Father. We're looking at Your Word, so we ask for You to um, open our hearts to the truths here. There's um, things that are relevant, not only in biblical history, but um, our own attitudes sometimes and our um, littleness of faith. We just pray You'd challenge us. Um, also, let us know that we're not alone in our weaknesses. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. So, this morning we're going to cover a topic of, of great interest, especially to those of you interested in the study of mankind. We're going to look at the thickness of the human skull. <laughs> this is a topic of enormous personal interest to me, but if you're not interested, you can study the hymnal or something like that, but no, not don't do that. I... And I don't mean the skull's thickness, like in terms of centimeters or anything like that. I know some Neanderthal fans back there are disappointed. I could just, I saw that on their face. But um, we're using it in a more metaphorical sense. So as I, was, as I was working through the gospel accounts and trying to identify the, the thematic breaks, because Matthew is a brilliant writer, and the paragraphs and, and Matthew's purpose, what really jumped out at me was how thick human skulls can be and I mean how slow we can be to pick up on what God is saying to us. Anybody ever have that experience? I can speak with some confidence on this subject because my own personal skull has been described as thick on more than one occasion in my life and that that doesn't refer to how well I can take a punch which is a closely guarded secret, don't don't ask me. But I'm talking about being dense, okay? Uh, Not getting it, being slow on the intake as a polite way of saying it. Needing to hear things more than once. Forgetting about lessons that I already learned or should already know, especially about spiritual things. That's what we're talking about. So if you've ever felt sort of dense about the things of God, you're in good company. Because there's 12 other guys right here in the Bible that are just like you. So don't be too surprised. So before we look at these dense fellows, I want to kind of give you a, a setting, a kind of where Matthew's going, and give you a sense of that. So we're, we're kind of in a transitional part of the gospel now. The last major theme we've been in for months, probably. Um, we call it the progressive rejection of the king. So you're seeing Jesus from different angles being rejected by the people he came to to bring the kingdom of God. And the new emphasis here that Matthew's working into is what we could call the preparation of the king's disciples. So he's gonna start focusing more on them and getting them ready because he is going to be rejected and they need to take over when he's gone. So the the shift in the gospel is more towards preparing the disciples. So in this section, um, these themes of rejection and preparation are kind of blended together. And I want to cover all of it this morning, all the way down to from chapter 15, verse 29, to chapter 6, verse 12. And there's really three stories, but they're intricately connected, so they they belong together. So we're gonna kind of take them all together. So let's begin after this um, sort of retreat or vacation, if you will, if you wanna use that word, that Jesus arranged for the disciples in the region of Tyre and Sidon up on the Lebanese coast there near the Mediterranean coast. Verse 29 says, departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And Mark in his gospel tells us where along the Sea of Galilee this was, it was in Decapolis. And that was an area of the, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, another area that had a lot of Gentiles there. It was part of Israel, but it was well suited um, for colonization by other peoples. And all the way back to Alexander the Great's time, he had taken veterans of his army and settled them there. And after his death, more guys came and settled there. And Greek, Greek people, Greek-speaking people. And then the Romans had a large um, presence there as well after they took over this part of the world. So there's a lot of Gentile stuff. And if you go there today, um, it, it, you can see the Greek culture, the columns, uh, I, idols, uh, a very large theater um, which sat about 5,000 people. So... Um, Gentiles would definitely be there. Theater going was not a Jewish thing to do. So there's a lot, of Jewish, uh, a lot of Gentiles there. And here's what happens in verse 30. It says, a large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Just that phrasing that Matthew chooses right there suggests that maybe many non-Jews might have been present as a part of this crowd. Doesn't usually talk about Jews glorifying the God of Israel. I mean, obviously that's who they're glorifying if they reach out to God. So there might be a hint there that Matthew's talking about at least a significant Gentile presence in this crowd, which is unusual. And that's quite a response. And this is not some modern miracle crusade thing. I mean, these people were really healed. You know, this is a real thing. This isn't some kind of chicanery thing. The lame, the crippled, the blind, the dumb, it says, and many others. So it's been said with some truth that wherever Jesus went, heaven touched earth. And it really is sort of a a prefigurement or foreshadowing of what his millennial kingdom will be like when he comes to reign upon the earth. His peace and healing and blessing will be extended throughout the world, and you get glimpses of it wherever he's ministering here. Okay, so what follows is another event, very much like the one that's in chapter 14, where Jesus fed 5,000 men and all the other people that would have been around those men, so maybe 20,000 or so people. Um, So you have another incident very much like that, but there's some differences uh, the setting is different. The size of the crowd is different. This one's a little bit smaller. The, the number of baskets they collect is different. The number of loaves they use is different. So it's not the same event, but it's very similar to the previous feeding of a, a large multitude of people. Now, I've got to say on a side note, being um, having been through uh, uh, several educational experiences related to this, that this is just the sort of thing, this story that we're about to look at, that... Um, Modern Bible scholars, and I'm just using that word in a kind of a broad sense, um, they use this as a way to cast doubt on the authenticity of the Bible. So, well, why would this particular story um, cast doubt on the authenticity of the Bible? Well, because it's in there twice. I mean, that's how they look at it. say, so, well, we just had a story of feeding a large group of people, and here's another story of greeting a large group of people. And so if you were like a, a young person and you took Bible 101 class in a secular university or even a lot of pretty compromised Christian colleges, which are, of which there are many in our time, the professor might say something like um, uh, he would present a theory that Uh, The Gospels were edited, they were a collection of traditions that weren't too clear, and somebody kind of put it all together, or a group of people put it all together, that kind of thing. They'll talk about the strains of tradition compiled by an editor after the fact, and they would say the author of this book has two divergent stories, and he doesn't know what to do with them. They both came down from the same event, and he doesn't know what to do with them, so he just sticks both of them in there, thinking that they're two different events when they're actually the same event. Now the the proof of that theory is like none. I mean, it's totally a speculative idea. But that's what people do with scripture rather frequently. The manuscripts don't reveal that there were two stories that were different down through time. It's all theory. But you know, if a knowledgeable person, an educated person, tells wide-eyed students stuff like that, they start to believe it, um, which is really dangerous. So the main idea is that there's two divergent traditions of one event and cobbled together in this one gospel. So that's, that's what's presented. So like I said, the evidence for that, I mean evidence, like real evidence, zero. Zero evidence for that. And, and when you hear something like that from somebody, you should say, what's the actual evidence for what you're saying? Well, somebody told me, my professor told me. Well, that's not evidence. That's just a guy talking, right? So what's their actual, What's his substance of his reasoning for that? Um, and I don't think, of course, that's true, obviously. For a couple of reasons, um, I think it's actually not even possible. For one thing, Matthew is brilliant. This gospel is not cobbled together. He's a master of literature. He, he's creating something amazing here, and it's very well thought out. And he would not clumsily drop in an extra story just because it's hanging around, you know, or that kind of thing. Also, Mark records the same thing. There's two different events in two different places, and he has both of these events. So we have two accounts. Matthew was an eyewitness. Mark's gospel is based on an eyewitness uh, that say the same thing about that. So there's that. And then our text itself, you can like sneak ahead and look in chapter 16 for a minute in verse 9. And Jesus in the story references both events. So it, it's not like they were dropped in there or it was an editor's sloppiness or anything like that. Jesus said, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you picked up? So it's clear there were two events. Jesus is talking about both the events right there. So there's nothing tricky about it or weird about it. It's just hap- it, it's happened twice. Something very similar happened twice, but not the same, but similar. So it isn't an odd mistake or anything like that. Um, there's no reason to believe that scholars are correct about theorizing like that uh, at all. They just have a lot of time on their hands, and they have a job. You know, when you're a, like a, a Bible scholar or any kind of field of literature studies or anything like that, you get, you get extra points for making up new theories about whatever you're reading. I mean, that's true in English literature, it's true in Bible things. And so if you just say this, oh, it's, it's true. Well, you don't get like uh, academic credentials for that. But if, but if you come up with a wild theory about how it all came to be, then you get, you get some bonus points. You can write a dissertation and defend it and all that kind of stuff. So why include, now this is a better question. Why would Matthew bother including two stories that are so similar? In other words, Jesus did tons of miracles. We know that from the Bible. It even says in John's gospel, he did way more things than what we're recording here. So we're just picking and choosing, right? So why pick a story that's just like the story he told just a couple chapters before? That, that's a reasonable question. Well, for one, it has to do with this theme that Matthew is transitioning into here. We're moving towards this theme of preparing the disciples. And it's how they responded to the, the events listed here that's gonna matter and um, how much they needed that preparation. I mean, that's what we come to realize. We see in the two accounts together how dumb they are. Now, um, that's, a, that's a mean word, not dumb. Some of you parents tell your kids not to call people dumb. So, um, how thick, that, that's the word, how thick they are. The disciples are pretty thick. They make the same mistake twice. The same mistake twice. It makes me think of Genesis Remember Abraham when he lied to the Egyptians in Genesis 12:13 telling Sarah to tell the pharaoh of Egypt that she's his sister and not his wife. You remember that? And that was like that's in Genesis chapter 12. God just made all these incredible promises to Abraham a few verses before. And um That's kind of terrible that he did that. There's a reason he did that. He must have known that there were situations where very powerful men, if they saw somebody with a beautiful wife, would uh, kill that person and take their wife. And he was worried about that. So he told her to lie, to tell a lie. That's a reasonable fear on Abraham's part, maybe. But it flat out denies all the promises God just made to him. I mean, if God promised you that, you know, in your seed, all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed. Uh, he's gonna keep your wife around. But he feared that, so he makes that foolish mistake. And God fixes it for him. Then in Genesis chapter 20, he goes to Gerar, and what does he do? Sarah, tell him you're my sister. <laughs> he just does the same thing. He does exactly the same thing twice. Same lie, different place. And if that's not enough, his son Isaac, who probably heard these stories around the, you know, the camp when he was a young person, he does exactly the same thing in the same place, Gerard, in Genesis chapter 26. Tell him you're my sister. Yeah, but I'm not your sister. Just tell him. And you know what critical Bible scholars say about Genesis? Exactly the same thing they say about Matthew. Oh, you know, whoever wrote Genesis, they had these... Tradition stories that came down about this event And they just had three different ones And just stuck them all in there That's what they say Boy, the guy or guys that wrote Genesis Sure got all confused about this thing That's what they would say But maybe it did happen three times Have you ever sinned the same twice? That same sin? I have I've done it I've done that I've done that So you can take some solace that Abraham did it, too. He had weaknesses, too, and repeated them, too. So why do it, though? So, you know, Matthew's only so long, he puts two stories in. Genesis is only so long, he puts it in three times, the same kind of a thing that happened. Why repeat that Isaac did the same thing, too? Well, there's a lesson there for one thing. A simple lesson that is that sons learn from the poor examples of their fathers. So dad did it. He, he lied and did this thing. So I can do it. And that's a, that's a sad lesson to learn, isn't it? But there's something more than that. So as thick as Abraham and Isaac were, God protected them. God fixed the situation. He stood up for them. And God kept the promises he made to Abraham and Isaac. Sometimes God directly intervened in those events, directly intervened to make sure that nothing was changed so that the line that's going to go down through, through Abraham and his family is going to lead to the Messiah. So he protected Sarah and he protected Isaac's wife from both of those experiences. Sometimes... He providentially protected it. One time, the, the ruler just looked out the window and saw them kind of kissing or nuzzling or something and He said, that's not your sister, <laughs> and just figured it out. So God allowed that to happen. So each time, God protected the line that he promised. So, th- so, what, so why is that story told so many times? Because God is active in protecting the promises he made to Abraham about his descendants and the ultimate descendant, the Messiah, that was gonna come from him, in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed, right? So... Back to Matthew 15 here. So we have a second occurrence of this feeding of the multitude to demonstrate, in part, how easy it is for us to forget the lessons that we've already learned because the disciples forgot. Verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. Loving concern. The disciple said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? Uh I can think of another time when it all worked out okay. So, you know, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 15, the disciples, are, they're tired, and they want Jesus to send the multitudes away in that particular situation, because they've been at it all day long, and they were supposed to be on a vacation. Remember that? In Matthew 15, 32, they've been at it for three days straight, ministering to people. That's a lot. And of course, they're controlling the crowds, keep protecting Jesus, you know, making it all orderly, and they've got a lot to do there. Food is really scarce And that difference alone, the fact that all those days of labor, the the first time it was just one day, this time it's three days, Um, and they're probably just burnt out, and so they're not making the connection, they're thick, that's what's going on. So um, let's go to the question Jesus asked. He states the concern, he basically says, look, we're about done here, the journey home for these folks could be rough without any food, I don't want to send them home empty handed... So he's expressing this desire to his men. He's putting it sort of in their hands. He's seeing what they're going to say, how they're going to think. He's giving them a a chance to show their faith because they could say, you know, Lord, we don't really have anything. But we know that if you will, you can make this little bit we have into a very great amount because you did it a few weeks ago. Enough to feed all these people What do they say, though? Well, verse 13. The disciples said, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? Well, where indeed? I mean, that's the whole point. Don't you guys remember chapter 14? So, you know, if you were standing there to the side, you might say, you might whisper to them, ask him. Ask him. Jesus can do it. But they don't do that. They they forgot, or they're weary, and then just in the moment, they're not thinking well, or maybe they remembered, but figured he wouldn't do that twice, or just assumed it was a one-time event, and they act all baffled, like, well, what are we supposed to do, you know? Though Jesus had solved this very same problem himself in front of their eyes on a much bigger scale pretty recently. So he asked them in verse 34, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. Seven and a few small fish, and he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and maybe at this point, they're starting to make the connection, because the same thing's happening, and he fed more people with even less food to start with here, so he does it again. He doesn't say anything else about it, right now. But verse 36, He took the seven loaves and the fish and giving thanks He broke them and started giving them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the people and they all ate and were satisfied and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides the women and children. So again, Jesus performs this incredible miracle of of great creative power, multiplying the loaves and the fish. Totally amazing. And then that story just ends. But I don't want to isolate it. So we're on to the next part now. So we're in a transition at the end of chapter 15 to chapter 16. And this is what follows. uh, 1539. Sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up And testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So we have here a a fairly brief, pretty typical encounter with the Pharisees. The one thing that's unique about it is the Sadducees are with them. Pharisees and Sadducees, they're oil and water. They don't mix. They hate each other. But they have a common enemy, so they're working together in this particular situation. Uh, They're all against Jesus. Jesus. And the ministry of Jesus threatens their prestige. He threatens their power uh, of both groups. So he is worthy of their hatred, is the way they might think about it. So they make this really brash request. Show us a sign from heaven. So it's kind of like, where have they been also? You know, he's been doing signs every day. They've had detachments of Pharisees and people from Jerusalem seeing him perform miracles multiple times. Now, I think that's actually kind of a fair question if somebody claims that they have all these powers and uh, if they, especially if they claim they have authority from God to say, well, we want to see some kind of evidence that you have authority from God. But these guys aren't doing that. They're, um, he's been providing those all the time, the, the, the proof of it, the signs. Jesus even says in John chapter 10, verse 37 and 38, he says, if you don't believe me, believe the works that I do because that's so Clear, you know? He, just, I, he didn't say it quite like that, but that was the thrust of it. But all the signs he performed were, were daily or almost daily, more than enough. So maybe from sign from heaven, they mean something really big, you know? Um, in fact, in John twelve thirty seven, it says though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. So he already done it a lot. But they want a big one, a big one. Moses got manna out of heaven. Joshua made the sun stand still. Samuel's sacrifice brought a storm, and it it crushed a, a, a Philistine army. And Elijah called down fire from heaven. Now, those are really good miracles. Making paralytics walk, that's okay. But let's see a sign from heaven. And, of course, Jesus doesn't respond to that. God does not perform miracles um, in that way for purposeless miracles. He doesn't, he doesn't dance for unbelievers, you know? If they can't see divine power in what Jesus has already done, they're never gonna do it. And they did see a miraculous power. Remember, they just said he was satanic. So he uses a, a common weather observation here. It's kind of an ancient version of red sky and morning, sailor take warning, red sky at night, sailor's delight. It's, it's sort of their version of that. And you have... He's saying, if you have ways of predicting the weather, how is it that you cannot see the signs of the times? How can you not tell what's going on, what God is doing? I mean, their corrupt, external, legalistic religion was being confronted with something something much greater and much more significant and much deeper and much more sublime, much more beautiful. First, God sent John the Baptist, the first prophet they had in 400 years. And John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. And then Jesus comes. He's the Lord of disease. He's the Lord of demonic powers. He's the Lord over death. And he's the most remarkable teacher that they've ever heard. And his compassion and his tireless service to other people is completely different than anything they've ever seen before in a godly leader. And he's never sinned. They can't think of one sin that he's committed. So Jesus exposed every flaw in their religious system and offered in its place these wonderful truths of God's grace and mercy in the kingdom of God. And, And they knew it all. They knew all of those things about him. It was well reported. They often saw his power and heard his words themselves, but they would not or could not see the significance of it So signs were abundant, and every sign pointed to Jesus as the man to follow. So Jesus says, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for signs. And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And then it says, he left them and went away. Evil, because they corrupted the word of God. Adulterous, because they clung to an imaginary God, really an idol of their imagination. They called it the names of the true God, but they had a different God than was the one that was really there. And the sign of Jonah, Jesus talked about that in chapter 12, Matthew 12, 39 and 40. It's sort of a prophecy by type, by uh, picture, because Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. I personally believed he died and was dead in the fish for three days and three nights, and then the fish spit him out. But he says it's just like, that's the sign. It's going to be like that. A man publicly executed is going to come back to life that's a sign, that's the sign they're gonna get, it's coming, not only the power of it, but what it declares, it declares that what Jesus said and what he accomplished was, had God's approval because God raised him from the dead, he's vindicated by his resurrection against all the calumnies they tried to throw at him, and that reverses the sentence of condemnation, his resurrection, so maybe they're gonna believe then, and some actually will, But he's giving them something to remember when it happens, which is a really generous thing to do on his part. But even if his resurrection won't convince them, uh, then it's hopeless for them. But he's gonna make, he's offering that to them as something to notice when it happens. And the resurrection still today is the most powerful and final argument for the reality of the Christian faith. That is it. It's the thing that unbelievers have to deal with because it's historical. It's a historical question. A true sign. So, there's that. Now we're gonna move on to one more incident. So we had the feeding of the 4,000, this interaction with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and now we're gonna move into this other story, and this is what ties it all together. So I began talking about skull density this morning, and we're gonna see how that fits in. So just kinda watch how this goes. Chapter 16, verse five. The disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. So Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, how does all that, what are they talking about here? So they're thinking, and they're probably discussing, hey, Matthew, did you bring the bread? Peter was bringing the bread. And Nathaniel, you're the bread guy this week. Nobody brought bread. Oh, man, we're in trouble. So that's, that's what they're doing. Notice I'm adding their thick accent. I don't, you know, I don't have to talk. They might have not been talking like morons, but um, it just, I'm just giving you a sense of their spiritual condition. So, the information in verse 5 kind of sets up the the fact that their minds were thick skulled at this moment, and they've forgotten to bring this bread while they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. So, there's discussing it. And Jesus, meanwhile, is thinking about deep spiritual truths he wants to share with them and his encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which had just happened. So, he offers them some really good advice watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're talking bread. He's talking leaven. Well, they do have something in common. I mean, leaven makes bread rise, right? But verse 7 there, they're just not listening. Um, they're, they're achieving a world-class level of density, denseness. They look at each other and they start whispering, "He said that because we didn't bring any bread. <laughs> <laughs> that's why. That's why he's talking about Leaven. He's displeased with us because we forgot to bring bread and now he's warning us not to buy any from the Pharisees. Something like that's going through their minds. I don't know what they're thinking. But they can't be any slower or thicker in this particular occasion. And, you know, we've all been that way. I've been that way. So why is he talking about leaven? Because he just came off that encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's why. Leaven is the stuff that permeates bread and it completely uh, you know, fills it up, if you will. It's, the, it's a common metaphor in the Jewish world for the pervasiveness of sin. Once you sin, and you're not gonna repent of that sin, you're gonna hold on to it, it's gonna start permeating your being, and you're gonna be more willing to compromise and commit other sins, right? And you, then you become a pretty wretched human being. Whole lives are set on a path of misery and failure by harboring one sin. And the Pharisees are great examples of that. Their pride, their hard-heartedness, their legalism, their twisted religion took all that they knew about Scripture and bent it all. It permeated everything they taught and the way they conducted themselves in the world. And it got to the point where they started to use their Religion is a cloak for a lot of unrighteousness. And he's already attacked them about that in this gospel. So it's, it's beware, beware, Jesus says. Shun pharisaical attitudes. Cast them away or they're going to consume you. So it's a, a, it's a very significant warning about spiritual pride. And Jesus says they're not just being thick, he's he's saying it's a faith issue, it's a lack of faith, it's a small faith. Verse eight, Jesus aware of this said, you men of little faith. So he doesn't say you dummies, he doesn't do that. He says you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves? Here's what we read earlier. The five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you picked up or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? So they have little faith, micron faith, faith. They couldn't seem to take what they knew and learned in the most simplest situation, the most obvious situation, and apply it to their life. Now, remember the Syrophoenician woman we talked about recently? She had what? Mega faith, right? And Jesus was kind of a little discourteous to her in certain ways. He was a little bit rude. And she just went at him, threw herself on the ground, pleaded with him. Lord, even the... Dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. This woman, she's it. Great faith. That's how he responded to her. Because she was all about what he could really do. She, she was totally into him. And they're like, oh, he's mad at us because, you know, we forgot the bread. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's teaching them about Pharisees and all kinds of wonderful truths. And they're not getting any of it. They didn't learn the lesson from the first time he made the loaves and the multiplied the loaves and the fishes and they're not even listening to what he's talking about here. That woman, that woman of great faith, when he said something to her, she picked up on it and she put herself in a humble position and pleaded still. She, she was totally focused on um, what she needed from him and she got it. They're not focused on anything except their own kind of earthly concerns here. So they're, they are missing some really valuable instruction by worrying about little stuff, earthly stuff. Have you ever done that? Ever missed some really important instruction because you were worried about stuff that didn't matter and not really paying attention to what God was focused on or what you should be focusing on? I've done that. And you know what, they can't keep doing that if they're gonna become world-changing apostles. They've gotta learn. So this is a learning situation for them we can't be obsessing on worldly things if we're gonna serve the Lord and, and that's what they were doing. They were so focused on some totally non-issue. He's not picking on them, he, he's, he's molding them and that's what we're talking about. This new theme is emerging in Matthew now where he's really gonna start training the disciples to take over and this is one of the lessons and he says they have little faith and they, they probably right away remembered when he said that, that Gentile woman, that Syrophoenician woman had great faith and now he's telling them they have little faith. They need to grow, they need to grow. So he's calling attention to their faults. And when, when somebody is calling attention to your faults and you really have those faults, he, that person is helping you become free. They're not putting you down. Uh, they're helping you become free. So be thankful for that. He describes their faith in very unflattering terms. And finally, they, they start catching on when he says that, verse 12. They understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, now we understand what you're saying. So thick skulls sometimes need direct confrontation. Not mean, just direct, you know, clear. He's not being unkind. He's not throwing a temper or anything like that. He's graciously saying, you guys don't have much faith. You're you're really focused on the wrong things. You've got to overcome that. Time to grow up. So often in our lives, there's this huge disconnect between what we know or claim to believe and then actually acting on it in an everyday kind of way. I mean, do you believe that God is the sovereign Lord of the universe? Do you believe that? Yeah. Do you believe that he cares about you, that he hates sin and that he loves righteousness? Yeah, I believe that. Do you believe if you serve him wholeheartedly, he will look out for you? If you say yes to those things, then those truths should directly influence how you handle life's problems, the mundane problems of life. And there's plenty of those. How you handle your relationships. How you handle your frustrations. Those great truths should directly affect each one of those things and more. Jesus said he came to bring peace to the hearts of those that belong to him. And divine truth in applying it Brings peace. It brings peace. But putting it on that religion shelf, you know, that shelf in your house that says Sunday only, and taking these great things and putting it there, that doesn't doesn't do it. And the disciples were kind of in that mode. They they were thinking about earthly stuff too much. They were overfocused on temporal non-stuff when Jesus is telling them really important things. So the lesson is take great pains to hear what God is saying to you in the word and what he means by that and make it an earnest goal to understand the truths that he's trying to share with you in the scriptures, to, to know him as he's revealed himself and then act on what you know. It, sh- it should be dramatically life-changing to know that God is absolutely sovereign over all things, that he has incredible power, infinite power, that he loves you That he died for you and he cares about you. And we read earlier today about, and Peter, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. To believe that and move forward. Let faith grow. The 12 apostles, how many churches in the world do you think are named after them? The gates of heaven are going to have their names on them. Think about that. And they're dense. And they're men of little faith at one time. But they grew. They grew. So you you can identify with them and their weakness. Also you can identify with the fact that they grew and became world-changing individuals. If they grew, we can grow because God hasn't changed. The mission hasn't changed. God is gracious to thick-skulled people. And Scripture says he will perfect, strengthen, and establish us if we trust him. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, are often dull of hearing and slow and distracted, but you are faithful and patient and working in us. So help us to hear all that you have for us in your word. Help us to be eager for divine truth so we may labor for you in a way that pleases you and that we can be lights in this world. This we ask in the name of your gracious and glorious Son, Jesus. Amen.